0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. I wanted to start out, before I launch into the major thing, I'm just uh, going to talk for just a second about uh, the masks and something that I learned uh, just recently listening to uh, wonderful programming that uh, is available to us on this station. Uh, And this was about the N95 masks. And essentially what we have here is we have uh, some issues with the genuineness of masks. Now there is a KN95 and What's important to know about that is that not, is that there's, that is actually not a standard. And a lot of the KN95s have, are spotty in quality. And so what you want to look for on your, in, on your KN95 masks is that they correspond to the GB2626 code. And that should be either stamped on there or on the box. I'm not really quite sure where I haven't uh, gone looking for them, but I presume it would be stamped in smaller letters under the KN95 or otherwise prominently displayed on the packaging. This is the international standard. If they don't conform to this, they may not be as good as you think they are. That being said, there is, I believe, a, a very appropriate discussion about whether it makes sense to wear these masks as, uh, prevent, as protection, if they're not all that good. I think the jury is still out and we're all going to have to take our best guess on this one. There are also KF94 masks. These come out of Korea. And if you're looking to get in more, um, more information about that, there's a, a nonprofit called Project N95 that will help you navigate the garden of uh, KN95, which is definitely a jungle. A very, very interesting article that came out, and I uh, want to talk about this. This was published about a week ago, but it's just, the preprint came out, I guess, about the 25th or 24th, and it's generated a lot of buzz. And uh, so let's talk about long covid And this latest research that suggests, well, among other things, that we need to work on our definitions a little bit. But it also raises some very interesting questions about who's likely to get long COVID and how can we tell who is. Now, first of all, a little bit about the study. I'm flipping through the pictures, the thing here to get to what they did. Uh, This study used a 309 COVID-19 patients and track them throughout their entire illness. This was done up in Seattle. And of course, they were, uh, let's just say, early responders to the uh, COVID-19. So they had opportunity now to follow people out for over almost two years. And this data was based on, I think, a six-month protocol. But they looked at people at their initial diagnosis They looked at them, if they were sick enough to be hospitalized, they measured their blood for various markers every, uh, twice a week, and during convalescent at about three months later, they integrated that with the clinical data they had, and also with patient-reported symptoms, and since this is a large uh, integrated healthcare system that was doing this, they had the ability to follow people, not lose them to follow up, and they looked at all sorts of blood markers and uh, proteins and various things. They looked at uh, the the actual developmental states of the T-cells and the B-cells as people went throughout the course of their COVID, and they were trying to figure out what factors might uh, make a difference. There are a lot of things that people can get. We're calling it at the moment uh, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 or PASC, I'm going to use long COVID for the for the discussion just to keep it clear, because we all understand, I think, that. But you need a more formal case definition. And part of what we're talking about tonight is this is a bunch of different things. It can include memory loss, gastrointestinal problems, fatigue, loss of smell, shortness of breath, many other symptoms. And there's been a lot of hypothesizing about what's going on here. What is this? And it's emerging that what this is, is a persistent uh, auto kind of autoimmune state, a persistent state of immune system activation, but there's also fibrosis and other things going on. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but they found that there were four factors that seemed to predict long COVID, and they also found that people who had very mild disease could also have long COVID. We don't have data. On vaccination yet. And so uh, I have some comments about that at the very end after we've gone through the data we do have. So what were the things? How sick did the person get? Well, that's fairly clear. Whether they had the SARS-CoV virus in their bloodstream at diagnosis or during the illness phase. Also, was their DNA Epstein-Barr virus. Now, Epstein-Barr virus is a member of the herpes virus family. These viruses have the property, like chickenpox and like genital herpes, of going stealth in the nervous system, in the DNA of the nerves, literally, hiding out and then periodically during times when the immune system is is depleted or distracted or otherwise engaged, re-emerging. People who suffer from shingles will tell you that often it, if, that it would come after a, period, a very stressful period or after a viral illness. That's sort of the observable phenomenon with the herpes virus family. The fourth thing that they found was type 2 diabetes, which be, seemed to also predispose people to this uh, disease. And so, The first group that I want to talk about uh, at length was the people who were reporting respiratory symptoms, respiratory type viral, dry cough, cough, nocturnal cough, things like that. People, uh, shortness of breath, those types of symptoms at three months after the initial diagnosis of COVID, COVID were associated with something rather interesting, a low level of cortisol in their bloodstream. Which is a hallmark of adrenal insufficiency. Effectively, you might say that COVID gave the, these individuals were, uh, were showing a kind of adrenal fatigue. And they also noticed that, uh, people would, uh, who had problems with, uh, neurological symptoms after COVID had elevated proteins that uh, are markers for a disrupted circadian rhythm cycle. So they essentially were jet lagged and having neurological func- function issues. A lot of these people had progression of their symptoms over the three months. So these this group got worse. On the subject of the latent EBV, Epstein-Barr virus is present, or antibodies to EBV, are present in about 95% of the United States population. But when they looked for reactivation of the virus, in other words, viral DNA, not antibodies, they found that there was an, that that correlated with some substantial differences in how these people uh, had a higher probability for developing different types of long COVID. So they looked for EBV, and they looked for another latent virus, cytomegalovirus, which is another one that can reactivate, and they did not find the cytomegalovirus. So this wasn't like an across-the-board reactivation. It was specific that they would find uh, EBV, and they found it in about 14% of the tested patients, and they found the SARS virus RNA in the blood of about 25%, and only a few people were positive for both. Now, memory long COVID was significantly associated with people who had both of them. So, if you had both high SARS and high EBV, you were much more likely to have memory issues at three months out. Uh, if you just had EBV, you might have memory issues, but you were very you were very specifically going to have fatigue. And I'm thinking back to the '80s when reactivated EBV was the cause of, was thought to be the yuppie flu. It was one of these uh, early chronic fatigue syndrome trails that turned up cold in terms of seeing it as causal. But maybe if we stop seeing this as direct cause, not a reinfection, but instead a marker for a particular type of auto of immune dysregulation, we're going to be closer to the mark. Now, they also found auto antibodies and the sort of things that you would pick up on uh, an ANA panel. So the anti-nuclear antibodies, the, the SS, the Smith, the Joe, the, the, anti- the small RNP, these are things that if you order a ANA panel with reflex to titer, you're going to see whether or not the person has some flavor of autoimmune disease. And the most common autoimmune disease we see these things in is lupus and the fact that you could find these these lupus associated antinuclear antibodies early on in acutely infected people suggests that instead of them being caused by the covid the they the the covid created a distraction and allowed for a reactivation of these Uh, Of these antibodies. And that's a really important thing. It was stimulating their release. But if you're already on the verge of developing an autoimmune disease, and the way I think about it is that autoimmune disease wants to happen in a substantial subset of the population. It's aggravated by a bad microbiome with pro-inflammatory factors. It's also aggravated by stress. But there's an innate sort of vulnerability at work here. And what we're seeing in these COVID cases, possibly, and this is still hypothetical, but the phenomenology is there to support this idea that when you, that the inflammation that the, is generated by COVID, which is highly pro inflammatory, among other things, because it takes out one of the major anti inflammatory mechanisms, and we'll come to that in a moment because it's super important. But these autoimmune antibodies do go up. Another thing they found was they found antibodies to inter to the they found antibodies to interferon alpha uh, two alpha, and interferon two alpha is an anti-inflammatory chemical signal. So if you, if you make autoantibodies against that, you're going to again turn off one of the the anti-inflammatory tools that the body has to put out the fire. So I'm starting to have this this metaphor or image in my mind of taking a flamethrower and spraying it on something like to get rid of the thing. And then somebody follows behind with a fire extinguisher and gets rid of the fire so that you don't damage the basic structure. So you sort of spray the fire and then come by and spray the and spray out the fire. And that's how the immune system works Go, it it lights itself on fire to burn down the enemy, but then it has, just by a slight delay, it has the fire extinguisher. And COVID-19 takes out the fire extinguisher, and some people, it seems to take it out fairly permanently. So people with respiratory uh, vi- viral post-symptoms really have higher levels of these an- interferon-alpha-2 auto antibodies so so there and that's a persistent thing and interestingly enough it's inversely correlated with the level of neutralizing antibody for covid so basically not only do you end up with a higher tendency to autoimmune but you end up with less covid immunity and more higher probability that you're going to reactivate and so these, uh, when you looked at these autoantibodies at the far end, you could see at the acute end that the people got more inflamed. They had more interferon gamma, more C-reactive protein, higher levels of IL-6. So and, uh, the whole host of pro-inflammatory genes that are inside the T-cells were upregulated. So this is, it, at some level, I'm getting geeking out on you here because it is so fascinating to see the deep interconnections and how this thing really really soured it, how it really, really interfered. And there's more. This is a very deep article, but I think there's some take-homes here. And the one in the article I'll start with, and that was, what if we gave antivirals to people? What if we looked at the presence of the, uh, what if we took everybody who had blood, who had COVID in their blood, and put them on an antiviral, even if they weren't sick, just because we know that's Correlated, and I'm talking in the future. We know that's correlated with long COVID. Would will vaccination prevent will I uh, long COVID, or will it actually make people more likely to get it? Probably not, but we don't have the data on that. What I did see in reading this article, and the thing I want to share with you is that I don't think that long COVID uh, or uh, persistent inflammatory. A post-acute sequelae of COVID, persistent post-acute sequelae of COVID, yeah, that's really hard to say. I don't think we should be studying that. I think there's probably at least four different versions of long-term damage caused by COVID, uh, COVID-19 COVID that are all showing up with enough overlap and symptoms that they're being lumped together. I think we've got at least four. So the first one is damaged from that prolonged ICU stay. People with COVID who end up on a vent stay on that vent for a very, very long time. And many of them survive, but they survive severely deconditioned. They have lung fi have lung problems, they have cardiac issues, they have sarcopenia, which is to say loss of muscles. And the thing that COVID attaches to, right, that ACE two uh marker on the surface you know it's it's called the it's ca- it's called ACE2 they're calling it a cell surface receptor calling it the covid receptor but it's not a covid receptor it's actually a functional enzyme system that cleaves angiotensin and it cleaves angiotensin 2 into something that's anti-inflammatory and anti-fibrotic and in fact, the a- there's tons of ACE2 in the lung for a reason. It's in there to prevent pulmonary hyper- uh, fibrosis after a lung infection. And if those levels are low or if you make an experimental animal that doesn't have it, they have much more scarring if they get a, a lung infection like bronchitis or especially pneumonia. Another thing it does is control the blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries and in the capillary bed. There's a a mysterious disease called pulmonary hypertension, which is quite awful and very difficult to treat. And it's considered idiopathics. But one of the things we do know about it is that we can mimic it by taking out the ACE2 in the lungs of experimental animals. We get something that looks just like it. So we need to watch for the prolonged ICU stay people and for the people who had a lot of their ACE2 basically grabbed onto and destroyed, and it may take them years to build the levels back of this marker that isn't a marker. It's a functional enzyme adaptive system that's anti-inflammatory. It's a fire extinguisher in my flamethrower and extinguisher model. The second long COVID we have to think about is embolic injury. That's your stroke cardiac. I heard a story on the news today of a woman saying that her child lost one of his front teeth, a light case of COVID, but he got a blood clot in the artery to the tooth, so the tooth died. And that's the sort of thing that may not show up for years and may never even be attributed to a mild case or a subclinical case. But certainly brain damage, uh, multi-infarcts, doing a small amount of uh, dementia, or a large amount of dementia, people uh, causing strokes. We certainly saw our fair share of that, and we also saw blood clots in the lungs, damaging the lung tissue. And then there's number three, the autoimmune. Losing those, losing that ACE2 and those factors, those angiotensin 1 to 7 breakdown products that actually serve an anti-inflammatory pro- uh, purpose. And now, that anti-interferon alpha that I just told you about, that also is going to cause an increased probability of autoimmune disease. And this autoimmune disease could have happened anyway. So this is a trigger, not a cause, important distinction. But it's a a permitting factor. It's allowing something that was being held at bay to escape its chains and go active in the body. And the other one is the slow cortisol level, this adrenal fatigue, and as I look at this, as I said, I was reminded of the yuppie flu and what we in and and also very similar to what people with, quote unquote, chronic Lyme disease get. You see these things, you see the autoimmune markers, you see the elevated levels of I of uh, interleukin six, you see these things in these individuals, they come in complaining of chronic fatigue and brain fog and you know, pain in their body and all sorts of, you know, got problems. It all sounds very, very disuse inflammatory because it is. And we in functional medicine have known about and treated the symptoms, these the symptoms of this, but also trying to get to the root and calm down the immune system. And we've made some really substantial progress. In a way, this is another COVID bonus, the amount of research money, dedication, also the fact that people are spreading around these preprints, which means that the field moves much further. People abandon lines of inquiry that have been refuted by other researchers and even it, and follow up on the, on the hot trails. This is like a worldwide or, yes, a worldwide scientific manhunt to understand what the heck is going on and when this many brilliant scientific minds put their full-time energy to it and share their information don't bother to you know register for patents and stuff we can make some really amazing moonshot pro- progress i don't know if you heard today but uh, our our fearless leader joe biden announced a uh, moonshot against cancer another moonshot project there's going to be a cancer cabinet there's a great excitement in the medical world to hear that maybe this incredibly intense scientific focus that I have just spent two minutes extolling could also be brought to bear on another major killer. And of course, let's address the funding, the disease inequity, the people who die of cancer unnecessarily because they didn't have access to screening or they didn't have trust or they didn't have outreach, or they simply didn't have money. We need to fix that. That's a great injustice, and uh, and I'm hoping that n- the war on cancer will address the root causes, which are environmental pollution, uh, diet, disease, treatable disease comorbidities, smoking. <laughs> These are the things that are really going to make a difference in cutting in half the number of cancer deaths in this country. I'm all, as you know, for for science but I'm also for being judicious about where you put your resources to get the biggest bang for your buck. I've budgeted and made tough decisions financially my whole life because I had to, and I'd like to see our government, who really doesn't have to, they can print the stuff, but I want to see them take the funding they get and direct it to the in the best possible way. Remember I said that the people who had elevated activation DNA of Epstein-Barr virus during their COVID infection had uh, problems with memory and fatigue, well, new research suggests that Epstein-Barr virus may be a leading cause, well, maybe more accurately, a leading trigger for multiple sclerosis. This is a progressive disease. We've got 2.8 million people worldwide with multiple sclerosis. And the drugs that for it, well, they kind of sort of work, but kind of sort of ain't good enough if you're losing the ability to walk. The latest study was published on January 13th in Science, and this is the first study that provides compelling evidence of, of triggering or causality, a link that is temporal. In other words, you get the EBV first and then the multiple sclerosis Shows up. Now, this is an autoimmune disease. The nervous system makes antibodies that attack the myelin sheaths, which are the fatty coating protecting the neurons in the brain and in the spinal cord. And EBV has been associated with it. It causes mono, right? And in certain individuals, primarily in Africa, probably because you need to be infected with something else or it's a microbiome thing, nobody really knows, people get something called Burkitt's lymphoma. But that's very rare to happen in the United States. Uh, that's, a, that's a digression. But like I said, 95% of adults have it and multiple sclerosis is rare. And to make matters worse, in this study, the the... MS symptoms began about 10 years after the Epstein-Barr virus infection. But this was a study done by the military. 10 million young adults on active duty in the U.S. military, and during that their period of service, 955 were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And guess what? The military has their blood. <laughs> it has their blood. It takes, them twi- it takes it twice a year. And uh, they went back into those blood samples, and they determined the Epstein-Barr virus status at the time the first sample was drawn, and then if they developed MS during their period of active duty, they were able to see if there was a correlation. So what they found was the risk of multiple sclerosis increased 32-fold. That's 3,200% after infection with EBV, but was unchanged after infection with other viruses, like CMV. They also found that... after EBV infection, they could find levels in the blood of these military uh, people of something called neurofilament light chain. And this is a biomarker of nerve degeneration. So that went up first before, long before any symptoms developed for multiple sclerosis. And this is in the blood. So this is suggestive maybe we have a marker when someone maybe has multiple sclerosis or they've got a white spot on their brain on an MRI, we could look for this marker to know at least whether we should really start focusing on their immune system and doing what we can to avoid uh, them getting the disease. It may be that this EBV reactivates and reactivates again, and this acts like a series of immunizations, finally to the point where the body is truly stimulated to be autoimmune against its own myelin sheets, But we also see this relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. And it makes me wonder, are those tr- being triggered by recurrent EBB infection? Has anybody looked for that? Well, I, s- I certainly hope in the light of this study, they will. Because that would also give us a way to test our anti-multiple sclerosis agents to test Let's let's talk monoclonal antibodies. I know it's a small population, but it's a very disabling disease. Maybe we could orphan disease it and get a monoclonal that would go after the antibodies against multiple sclerosis early on, and maybe that would be enough to alter the course of the disease. Another thing while we're on the subject of military recruits and Uh, multiple sclerosis is the fact that this is where the very well-established connection between vitamin D levels and vulnerability to multiple sclerosis comes from. Basically, you do not want to be a dark-skinned person living in the northern part of the United States without taking vitamin D supplements, because if your vitamin D level is below 20, your risk of developing multiple sclerosis is substantially increased. So maybe just like a lot of autoimmune disease, this is always trying to happen, but because we have such great fire extinguishers running around, it isn't allowed to. And vitamin D, well, that's a general fire extinguisher for autoimmunity, and it's one of the first things I do when someone comes to me who presents with an autoimmune disease. Let's talk dogs. I love dogs. I I can't pass up a, a nature story about a dog, particularly one that also talks about the genomes. So from Chihuahuas to Great Danes, dogs differ more in size than any other mammal species on the planet. A mutation behind such variation has been traced to an unexpected source. We thought it was something that maybe the Brits did when they invented kennel clubs, but no. Ancient wolves are the source of this mutation, going back over 50 million years. The mutation lies... Just near a gene called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, we have drugs that uh, imitate IGF-1. We have drugs that we use for diabetes because it helps improve the insulin response. But this has been flagged for at least 15 years as having a role in size variation. But there's like two, two other different genes that are all implicated. No one really could quite figure out how it worked. And that's because they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking in the coding DNA. Now, we know that ancient dogs were domesticated from wolves about 30,000 years ago, and they differed in size from some extent, but not like now. We've got uh, some, the largest breeds are 40 times bigger than the smallest breeds, and these emerged in the last 200 years as humans started doing, playing games with selective breeding. But Researchers at uh, INSERM University of Rennes in France um, analyzed the genes of more than 1,400 different canids, including ancient fossilized dogs, wolves, coyotes, and 230 modern dog breeds. And what they, it was not in the coding DNA. The difference between the, that seemed to be most important for body size, lies in a stretch of DNA that encodes a molecule called long non coding RNA. So this is a gene controller bit of DNA, essentially a promoter gene. So it controls how much of that DNA gets transcribed for the insulin-like growth factor. And that's what determines how big the dog gets. If you make more of this protein because you have a particular allele of the promoter region then you're going to have a bigger dog. Dogs with two copies of one allele tend to weigh less than 15 kilograms, less than you know, 35 pounds. The other versions tend to weigh more than 60 pounds. And dogs with one copy of each allele t- tend to be in the middle. But two copies uh, of the hot, large body allele had measurably level, higher levels of IGF protein in their blood in living animals. And it wasn't just a dog story. It was a wolf story, a fox story, a coyote story, any canine. So it goes way, way back. And evolutionarily, we think the small body allele is much older than the large body version. Coyotes, jackals, and foxes and the canines that they came from, the ancestral versions of those animals had two copies of the small version. I just, I find it so fantastic that we can analyze ancient DNA like this. It blows my mind. It's the first copy of the large body allele was found about 53,000 years ago in an ancient wolf that lived in Siberia. So we used to think that the small body size was linked to relatively newer genetic changes, but it turns out it's the opposite. So Yes, dogs were domesticated from wolves, but they were probably small the smaller wolves, not like our present-day gray wolves, who have the large allele. In fact, we don't know what the wolves that led to dogs looked like. I'm sort of thinking about, you know, a fox-sized wolf. Personally, that would make a lot more sense for the idea that they would be, you know, easy to domesticate and not quite so scary. But, uh we're not talking about a chihuahua-sized wolf. We're talking about a fox-sized wolf, so an, a medium-sized wolf. However, I love it. I think this is just a fascinating idea. And because I love dogs, I'm going to share this with you. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's go and look at emails. First one from Tim. Tim says, ah, a cure for cancer. Finally, never mind the toxic scu- uh, st- stew of chemicals we swim around in every day. Well, Tim, I totally agree with you. We have 50,000 chemicals that have been allowed into our environment that have just not been proven to be bad for us. And once we prove one of them is bad for us, like bisphenol A, well, the market takes them out of the environment. But in the meantime, we've got bisphenol B, C, and D, and those having it's sort of like Innocent until proven guilty, which is fine for the courts, but not necessarily such a great idea for chemicals. We do have a problem, and I want to emphasize that's why the equity piece of this is so important. And I'm not just saying that to virtue signal. If you live near a road, if you live near a factory, you're breathing in particles, and you can do everything right and still have a higher rate of lung cancer and brain cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease and diabetes, from the toxic nature of these small particles. And that definitely does correlate with your economic status and where you get to live. Uh, Other factors, water quality, the jobs that people get, the food that they can afford, all of these things are huge influences in who gets cancer. So that is part of the war on cancer, as I said in my remarks. It's going after the... after an environmental equity and taking a prevention stance, not just an early detection stance. Our next email uh, from uh, a Mr. or Ms. Harris. Uh, Hi, Dr. Don, interesting program tonight. I'm writing because after I got my second Pfizer Vax, I had pretty severe memory loss. I'd appreciate your thoughts on this, given what you're addressing and also ways to treat it it cleared in six months with a lot of various brain neutrochemicals. And so uh, let's talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about that. Inflammation can cause brain fog. If your glial cells light up, you're more likely to have malfunctioning uh, brains that interferes with the it interferes with your brain's ability to clear amyloid, it, uh, which is of course a very bad thing. Inflammation in its stuff in itself interferes with new synaptic formation, which of course is what memory is, is making new synapses. So it's very it is possible that there's a definite connection in certain individuals. and that's a real Fausting dilemma. So what if it's true? What if a small number of people who get the vaccine have a flare of something that was already on a hair trigger. They already had some brain inflammation and this just kicked them over the edge. What if that's true? Well, if it's true, then that person escaped COVID, which probably would have done that permanently. And depending upon your odds of getting it, which at the moment appear to be excellent, I'm really glad that I'm vaccinated and boosted because I'm going to get a light case of the COVID takedown. And if I'm right on the edge, it still may take me down from the vaccine and the booster. And that's a chance I'm ready to take. And I think ultimately we don't know enough about this to really know exactly what's going on. Now with someone like this, it's a single person, something else may have happened to them to mess with their memory, stress can mess with the memory, lack of sleep can mess with the memory, we're in the middle of an epidemic, there's all sorts of what we would call confounders, additional factors at work here. But taking it as read, even if this association is true, it's not going to dissuade me from recommending vaccines and boosters. uh, Because I think we have to take our, you know, as uh, the old saying goes, you pay your money and you take your choice. And I'd rather. We're at risk of the vaccine than the disease. The disease is a serious, nasty killer, and so unless you can go live in a cave, which uh, with you know, delivery of all your groceries and you're very and never see your family or hug anybody again, your odds of getting this are going to be excellent without vaccination. So, rock in a hard place, I'm afraid. But thank you for your comments. I definitely appreciate and respect your willingness to ask the question. On this latest email, I've got a report. Uh, Be careful with this message. I know this person, so I'm going to be careful with this message. What this, uh, what this person says is, I'm a 70 year old male. What range of vitamin D should we try to achieve? How much vitamin D supplement should we take? And best regards. So, if you've got autoimmune disease, I try to get you between 70 and 90. More than that, and you start downregulating your vitamin D receptors. So you actually backfire. That's true of almost all hormones. There's a sweet spot, and there's a too much. And when you get to too much, just like when you take opiates, you take too much opiates, your opiate receptors go away. Your insulin's too high, your insulin receptors go away. Well, you uh, take too much vitamin D, your vitamin D receptors downregulate, and now you have less activity. In, in the pathways that you were trying to stimulate than if you hadn't overdosed. So don't go above 90. In under any circumstances, the sweet spot for just general maintenance of health in functional medicine terms, we try to get, uh, in at least, at least in the forties and ideally in the 50 to 70 range. I try to keep myself in the 50 to 70 range, takes care of among other things, all of my hay fever and allergies. And, uh, My immune system is good, and I don't have a lot of inflammatory markers. In the wintertime, before I started using vitamin D, and I'll give you the levels, the doses in a minute, I found it made, uh, I got lots of aches and pains, and it turned out when I checked, yeah, my vitamin D level was 22. And uh, now it stays in the the 70s, and I just don't get those winter aches and pains and mood swings anymore. So for me, it's been really beneficial. I take 5,000 units a day. Studies have shown that levels in your bloodstream go up fairly slowly, so you check uh, the vitamin D levels again at maybe three months after starting supplements. My recommendation always is get a baseline level and find out where you're starting. People vary quite a lot in their ability to absorb vitamin D. There's also a different Uh, can of worms, which is whether you have good vitamin D receptors or whether you have mutations in your vitamin D receptors. But we're not going to cover that tonight. Just that can be a thing. If you get up to the 50-60 range, you're probably covered even if you don't have great vitamin D receptors, which is one of the reasons that in functional medicine, we sort of shoot for that level. There is a point of diminishing returns, as I've said. So if you can get it to 50 and keep it there, that's great. You check a level at the three-month mark if you're still not there keep taking the 5000 go up to look again in 6 months it will tend to stabilize after that and at that point if you're starting if you're continuing to go up i would back the dose down a little bit obviously you you can also raise vitamin d using tanning beds you can raise vitamin d by just spending time out in the sun but for those with ex- with lots of pigment it, that doesn't work. And at least as far as the multiple sclerosis, there are no underlying protective factors. Interestingly enough, if you're a dark-skinned individual and you have low vitamin D, you're not very likely to get osteoporosis. So there's some protective factor there that I, I don't think has been studied, or if it has, I haven't seen the paper. But it's a hormone. That's the thing. We call it vitamin D. It's a naturally occurring hormone that's made from cholesterol in the skin, it's not a vitamin, in the sense that it's a it's a cofactor for an enzymatic reaction, which is what all the other vitamins are. So, yeah we we need to maybe think twice about our terminology, but I'm afraid it's too late. We all think of it as a vitamin, and that's as that's as far as we're going to get. I'm going to launch into something that will probably take the rest of the program. And uh, it's about getting lost in the woods. So st- story starts about 30 years ago when a psychologist at uh, the University of Alberta named Ed Cornell uh, got a call from uh, some rangers who were looking for a kid who had wandered away from the campsite a few, day- a few days earlier. And they'd been looking... For uh, wayfinding behavior, people who get lost, how do they get lost, what routes do they take. And until that time, nobody had ever thought about how people got lost. And searches had always been some sort of search a grid, uh, move through a space, beat the bushes. And they wanted to bring science and behavioral science and statistics and probability into it and try to find people before it got too late. And the job of finding people is a psychological challenge because what's clear is that most lost people rarely do much to help themselves, and they are likely to make things worse by continuing to move, which substantially reduces the chances of being found alive. Uh, Let's see, in a review of more than 800 search and rescue cases from Nova Scotia, uh, Kenneth Hill, this was about 10 years ago, found only two people where, only two cases out of 800 where people stayed put. An 80-year-old woman out picking apples and an 11-year-old boy who'd taken a survival course. And the, the urge to move is innate when you're being afraid. And the fear of being lost is just as visceral as our response to snake. It's hardwired into the brain. You know, millions of years of evolution have said being lost is really bad. And that makes you terrified. Which, when fear kicks in, the frontal lobes stop working. Your executive functioning fails. You fail to notice landmarks, you forget to remember them. The hippocampus is offline, so you're not remembering that you've seen it before. You lose track of time. It's essentially a prolonged panic attack. And all of the cognitive functions you need for wayfinding disappear. This was a study done by uh, Charles Morgan in Connecticut a few years ago. He took pilots and aircrew, put them in a mock um, prisoner of war camp, and then tested them. Their, their working memory and their visual spatial processing went to, just went to hell. They couldn't read maps. They couldn't do navigation tasks. They were performing at a level commonly seen in children under 10 because of the stress of the situation. And search and rescue parties will tell you they see people wandering in, trance-like, walking by the search parties, oblivious, uh, running off, having to be chased down and tackled because they're so confused. The records suggest that there are certain tendencies that are universal, certain things that we can do uh, and do do that can be weaponized, shall we say, in the search. There's things that are just sort of intuitive to how the human brain works. Let's talk about some some of them. We're all drawn to boundaries, like the edge of a field, a margin of a forest, a line of pylons, or the shore of, of a lake. Phase transitions, places, that's where people are often often drawn to to stay. Most lost people who were found alive end up in a building or on what rescuers call a travel aid, which is a road or a track or an animal trail. And rescuers now go straight to those features, go to the animal trails, go to the tracks, go to the train tracks, because these are the most likely places that people will wander to and stay with. Another thing that they found are children are less likely to than adults to keep moving. Which explains why 96% of children are found alive, and only 73% of adults. Children with autism usually take risk in some kind of structure, with whether it's a bush or a shed. People with dementia, however, tend to head in a straight line. And solo male hikers, once lost, well, that's your worst one. They tend to travel much further than any other category of missing person. They just keep on walking, and they're strong. And they walk away from their rescuers. So different types of people get lost in different ways. And it's important to think about that as you're both putting together a rescue and also if you do get lost. Let's talk about children first. Uh, Their major finding is that children, when left to roam by themselves, Travel about 22% farther than anybody thinks they will, and sometimes three or four times further. But how they travel is different than adults. They never travel directly. They wander, they dawdle, they get distracted, they take long, circuitous routes. Uh, They just kind of, they're almost out there doing free play, even when they know they're off the path. And so that changes when you're looking for a child what you're going to do. So how can you get found if you get lost? This is probably (laughs) when I think about getting lost in the weeds of a scientific paper or getting lost in the weeds of an argument. I think this is also good advice. The the most important thing to do is to stop moving. Um, There was a pioneer of desert exploration in his memoir. His name is Ralph Banyold, and he wrote... In, he was a North African explorer, so we're talking about, you know, Lawrence of Arabia-type deserts. And when lost, he recalled being seized by an extraordinarily powerful impulse to carry on driving in any direction. It's, the psychological effect was intense, and it's been the cause of nearly every desert disaster of recent years, he wrote. If one can stay still even for half an hour and have a meal or smoke a pipe, reason returns to work out the problem of location. Now, if you think no one is coming, your first strategy should be to try to retrace your steps after you've taken a break. This works with argument and intellectual problems as well. It requires patience, which is difficult when you're terrified, so you need to get unterrified. Do your deep breathing. Take some, take some time. You, there's no deadline here. So if you can't figure out which way you're heading, do what a toddler does. pick a, Do direction sampling. Pick a landmark, such as an outcropping or a large tree, and treat it as the hub of a wheel. Then walk out along the spokes of the wheel while keeping the hub in sight. If you don't find anything familiar, turn around and go back to your hub and set off in a different direction. One o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock five o'clock, and so on. Just keep looking for something familiar. Another tactic is to climb a hill so you can more easily spot distant landmark. This is going to work if you have a map and know how to read it, but if you don't have a map, stay where you are. The best, I, I guess the best uh, thing I would say, since you may be there for a day or two, is find a water source and stay there because that's also one of the things that rescuers now put at the top of the come-and-find-me list. So from dog DNA to the inner workings of COVID to robot surgery, and this is a breakthrough by all stretches of the imagination, a robot has performed laparoscopic surgery autonomously without any guidance of a human uh, by the human hand a significant step in robotics uh, fully automated surgery is coming to a hospital near you the device was described in uh, the January 26th issue of science robotic it's called the smart tissue autonomous robot or star and by the way i i trained in surgery and i will completely agree that one of the most difficult things to do in surgery is to reconnect properly two ends of an intestine. The STAR performed the procedure in four animals, pigs, as it happens, and it actually produced significantly better results than humans performing the same procedure. Now, I will add, these were researchers-type humans, not surgeons, who routinely do this surgery all the time and have gotten quite good at it. But the robot excelled at intestinal anastomosis, where you t- essentially take connect two ends of the intestine and you have to do it very tightly with little tiny stitches and you have to not puncture the intestine while you're doing it because if you do that, you will get a leak, which could cause bacteria to get into the uh, abdominal cavity and cause septic shock. So the robot's a vision-guided system designed to suture soft tissue. What they did was... Essentially, they, the prototype comes from 2016, but the software wasn't ready and they didn't have the machine learning. This new robot has enhanced autonomy and it's got some special suturing tools and very, very good visual processing. And because soft things move in the intestine, it has a novel control system that basically can change the surgical plan in real time it's able to adapt and execute a plan with almost no human intervention. They aren't telling me exactly what they did do besides hit the on button, but we're getting very close to something that could be driven uh, remotely. I've been watching a lot of Black Mirror lately, just finishing up my binge. It's been a very, very erratic binge, but I'm done now. But the idea of a surgeon, an experienced surgeon, sitting in front of a panel of uh say three or four or maybe ten cameras, watching the robots at work in various locations belonging to you know whoever owns the equipment because it probably won 't be the doctor uh, and simply you know stopping if an air, being there to kind of troubleshoot if the device gets into trouble that almost seems like something that's going to inevitably happen. And uh, stay tuned, because when it does, I'll be there to tell you all about it. Also on the topic of robotics, uh, somebody's come up with a way of making artificial muscles out of biological uh, proteins. And uh, they basically constructed a bimetallic strip. They used a natural protein called elastin, which turns into a Uh, It's a polymer, so it can be of any length, just like a plastic. So they developed two elastin-like proteins. These can stretch or contract, uh, and one of them responds to pH changes and gets shorter in response to a change in the pH of the fluid surrounding it. The other responds to changes in temperature. They combine these two together to create a bilayer, and this is just like the bimetallic strip in a thermostat, or in a temperature switch. They can contract the muscle and turn that on and off with temperature changes. They then figured out how to get rhythmic contractions by putting it in uh, sodium sulfide as an energy reaction, and they set up an oscillating chemical reaction that changed the pH. uh, At an equilibrium, the pH would go up and go down and go up and go down, and the material contracted autonomously in a cyclical manner following the pH. They could also uh, switch the contractions on and off with temperature change. So if it got too hot, it stopped. And if it got too cold, it stopped. The sweet spot was about 20 degrees Celsius, body temperature, as it happens. You can see how that could be used to create internal devices and switches. And gosh, it's amazing to think of what the future holds. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at, at AskDR For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky, music by John Scoville.